Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti. My co-host is Kate Kolzik, TV editor at soundonsight.org and writer at theavclub.com. And our guest this week is a director whose uh, films include Cube, uh, Cypher, Nothing, Splice, and Haunter. He is also the director of several episodes of Hannibal, including uh, the episode that we'll be talking about today and the first three uh, of this season three. We're very happy to welcome back Vincenzo Natalia. Vincenzo, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Always a pleasure. All right. So, um, well, I guess I wanted to ask uh, just before we begin, uh, are you doing any more episodes this season or was it just these three? Uh, I did four in total. So okay. I did the first three and then number six. Excellent. Uh, so that's something else to look forward to as well. A couple of housekeeping things just up at the top. Uh, once again, for listeners, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Sean Coletti. Kate is at The Televerse. Uh, and Vincenzo, you just joined Twitter recently this year, right? Yes. It, um, <laughs> there was some hesitation there. Maybe it was a mistake. <laughs> it's very distracting. It is, isn't it? There's a lot to do, and you kind of have to to limit yourself to only a certain amount of time per day. You really do, because it just yeah. it never stops. Um, so that's one way of getting in contact with us. You can also email uh, Kate and myself at thisisourdesign666 at gmail.com, uh, and you can post a, a comment over at soundonsite.org when this goes up and leave a, a rating over at iTunes. So... Uh, with that out of the way, this week we'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 3, Secondo, written by Angela Burnett, Ryan Fuller, and Steve Lightfoot, and of course directed by Vincenzo. And uh, just as a table setter here up at the top, this is your Hannibal by the Numbers for Segundo. Uh The episode includes 10 speaking roles, a total of 261 lines, and there are 33 individual scenes that take place in, well, really three different countries. So uh, that's interesting. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the the multicultural and international aspects of this episode as we go along. But I wanted to begin by talking about something, um, a, a piece of dialogue that's spoken by two characters to each other. This is between Shio and, and Will, that all sorrows can be born if you put them in a story. I wanted to, to start off by kind of thinking about fiction uh, as a sort of coping mechanism and to consider what kinds of sorrows Hannibal brings up and how it helps both the characters and the viewers bear those sorrows. There's obviously a lot of uh, recovery going on after the events of last season, uh, but Vincenzo, what, what do you think of some of these ideas in terms of how seeing these things on screen and through uh, a narrative that's constructed, how does that help us deal with some of the stuff that goes on in Hannibal? Well, I always, I mean, if one could define Hannibal as being horror, I always think of horror as being a genre that very specifically and directly is cathartic and, and partly exists for us as a means of dealing with our sorrows and our fears and, and, and very deeply set primal uh, issues, like the fact that we're all going to die. <laughs> so um, in that respect, I, you know, I think that's a very true statement uh, that Chio makes. And um, I haven't really thought about it in this 
light exactly, but I do think that Hannibal is very self-consciously writing his own narrative through the people that he encounters and is kind of writing an epic poem about himself and, um, and, and uh, the web of people that he surrounds himself with. So I think, yeah, I think that's, that's very endemic to what the show is. And I, I think the way Brian writes, there is a epic poem quality to it. It's very literary and very self-consciously poetic and um, very aware of the narrative tools that he's using to construct this kind of Byzantine story. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my response. Yeah, well, there's still a lot of storytelling in these first three episodes. I mean, that's one of the ways that we're introduced to the season where Hannibal's talking to Abel Gideon and uh, compares it to a fairy tale and the unfolding of a fairy tale as we move along into this year's story. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that idea of using the uh, storytelling as a a form of communicating sorrow, yeah, sadness, certain things that are difficult to deal with is something that, that goes on a lot in this series. It's funny for me to think of it as, as an epic poem because, of course, that's how Hannibal would think of his story. He's this you know, larger-than-life figure. Uh, but for me, and especially in this episode, he's just he's so juvenile. He's so adolescent um, as he's, like, sitting and sulking about Will at the beginning or when he uh, stabs Sogliato. Sogliato. Um, it just seems it's so immature. Like I really think of him as more like... If you want to be classical with it, like Hamlet constantly moping uh, because of all, of all of the drama and all of the angst um, and, you know, transitioning from the fantasy and the fairy tale of the first episode, we see this, it feels, it feels like a very different Hannibal. And then that, that line at the end of the second episode, I forgive you, just kind of spins Hannibal off into this new headspace for this third episode. And, yeah, it's funny to think of the different literary or you know narrative parallels that you could have with with Hannibal in this episode because yeah, he doesn't feel like the epic hero to me in this, but it feels like he's the like he's the the kid in in high school who's so certain that he's like this tragic hero that is completely misunderstood and one day I'll show him. Um and so to to contrast the the story of Hannibal's writing for himself and the narrative he's constructing around himself with the way it's depicted, um, that Vincenzo, your direction depicts it, also the script uh, is really fun for me. Uh, no, I was just going to say that uh, you know when we were doing the first three shows, um, Brian and uh, Steve Lightfoot, who co-wrote with him, were very conscious that each episode had its own identity. So the first episode we were constantly comparing it to a Patricia Highsmith novel and had that sort of old Hollywood feel to it to some degree and the trappings of a classic noir suspense thriller. And then the second episode felt a little more in keeping with the previous season and maybe a little more internal and surreal. And then this third episode, we absolutely saw as a fairy tale. So each one had its own kind of narrative flavor to it. And uh, and I 
presume that continues throughout the season. So if this one is more designed like a fairy tale, was there like a a kind in mind or just generally? Because as I was watching this, I was kind of surprised and struck by how psychedelic it is at many points, which was, um, you know, in, in pretty stark contrast to these first two episodes. Well, fairy tales can be pretty psychedelic. <laughs> and I think, um, I think it was just the nature of, of Chio, you know, living in this kind of gingerbread house in the middle of the Lithuanian forest with a castle nearby and a man trapped in the basement. It had a Grimm's fairy tale uh, quality to it, just um, based on its conception, what it is. And, um, and the kind of visuals that it, it, it conjured, um, conjured, uh, like the, the cochlear garden and the fireflies. And it just had that quality. And I remember Brian very specifically wanting that location to be just constantly within a fog. And, um, he was, he was very, very determined that it, it have a, a larger than life, um, magical quality. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, in that way, it's, it's like a fairy tale. I mean, there are aspects to it that probably are not like a fairy tale at all. Um, Specifically, you know, the way the characters speak is they're very self-aware and analytical and so on. But the the overall vibe of it, I think, had that grim fairy tale or even you know, mixed with a little bit of Hammer films, um, you know, gothic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which was, you know, clearly a different feeling than the other episodes. It was. It was interesting to see them come together because they were actually shot at the same time. <clears throat> we shot the first three almost like we were shooting a movie. So in a single day, I, I could theoretically be shooting scenes from all three episodes. But each one, I kind of had to keep in mind that each one had its own visual stamp. Yeah, even just I mean, the, the, the mist is clinging to, the, to that house, to the, the you know, to, to, to the estate. And we're literally in the forest and the way that she was introduced is very much like like a huntsman kind of introduction the way she's she's very comfortable with that shotgun uh so yeah you can de definitely see you know will going into the forest will you know embracing this darker side um that he is you know the way that he he does he tends to <laughs> in this series it's well i'm sure we'll get there it's uh I'm not too happy about it because I want my will all happy, which is not going to happen for quite a while, I'd imagine, if it will again. That uh, that miss clinging to the the house reminded me of that time in season one when Will's describing um, how he sleepwalks and, and looks at his house from a distance and it looks like a boat out drifting in the ocean. I guess it would make sense that there are parallels between how he views his home and how he views Hannibal's. Um, but yeah, just going into this location... This fairy tale uh, structure seems really appropriate, just because we kind of think of Hannibal, the character, in in that kind of way. He's somewhat of a legend uh, in the series. He's obviously a legend outside of the series, um, with all the different adaptations that we've got, and it allows us to delve into his backstory, which uh, you know readers got in in Hannibal and in Hannibal Rising. But this is Brian Fuller's 
take on that, and so this is bound to be a bit different. And Chio is one of the conduits for that. So I wanted to maybe think a little bit about her character uh, in this episode, and and Kate, if you think that she kind of helps us better understand, is it just Hannibal, or does she also help us understand the way that Hannibal has built his relationship with Will over these three seasons? I, I didn't really think about Chio in relation to how she informs Hannibal's relationship with Will. So I'm going to have to do some more thinking on that before I finalize my review. Um, but it's, it's what, what I was struck by with Chio is a contrast to Will um, is I it just, I kept coming back to, there's all of this. Um, she's very informed by the procedure of her life, the routine of it when she's, you know, shooting the, the bird and then plucking it. And there, there's a, uh, she seems to have a piece in the in the repetition of that and the procedure of it, the the routine of it, and that sort of contrasts with uh, I, I guess it, it parallels Will's like his making of the fly fishing lures and some of these other things that he does in his spare time when he's not you know <laughs> finding serial killers, but um but also just the contrast in her reaction to to killing her prisoner and that that's really she seems like she's someone in need of purpose and in need of structure. Um, if she wasn't, I mean, there's a lot of things she could have done rather than just continue to feed this guy, this horrible person. Um, we're allowed to believe every day for her entire life, the, the way that it seems like she's accepted, she will. Um, and so to, you know, her horror at killing is, seems very much, she did not want to be that person who would get pushed into that position. I think she offers actually more of an interesting, for me, a parallel to Bedelia because the way that, um, uh, the way that Will manipulates her into killing, um, the, the, her prisoner is very reminiscent to me of the way that Hannibal manipulates Bedelia into killing her patient. Um, so that's, you know, the parallel I was seeing, but yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thought, the way that Hannibal, that she owes, existence like this this person that Hannibal sort of set into motion and just left theoretically in stasis in re repeating the same day for years for decades maybe um how that informs like that's one of those trains that Hannibal's following yeah it, it reminds us of how I think it was with Randall Tier in last season mm -hmm. where he talks about just creating these things and letting them go and seeing how they operate um but yeah the 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 parallel between Bedelia and Chio is really interesting. Vincenzo, are, are characters like shot in certain ways to to draw those comparisons? I guess with more emphasis. Um. <laughs> well, yeah. I know. I don't know <laughs> well, much yeah, about directing. It's all so. very carefully planned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all intentional. I'll ex I'll accept uh, that, but um, no, I I didn't. I mean, the parallels that I've visually drawn in a not so subtle way are, are clearly between Will and Hannibal. And I'm always looking for ways to compare and contrast them visually. Um, and as I say, in, in an extremely unsubtle way, <laughs> like morphing from one face to another. <laughs> so, uh, because I definitely think that, you know, they're, they're two sides of one coin and, um, you know, it wouldn't be the least bit surprised if one day we discover they are the same person our uh, fight club, but um, so I, uh, but I think no, I, I think Katie 
oh, I'm sorry, Kate, you've made a very astute um, observation that there's a parallel between Chio and Bedelia, and in a way, maybe Chio was a predecessor to Bedelia in terms of Hannibal's relationship um, to women in his life, and women that he clearly respects. He has tremendous admiration for Bedelia, and he, he, as you'll later discover, has similar feelings for Chio. So, um, yeah, I think there is that connection, but I didn't, I have to confess, I never, perhaps because the characters in my episodes, uh, and well, I can't say what happens, but in these, <laughs> these episodes don't directly intersect. Um, I didn't make any visual uh, comparison between them at all, actually. And, uh, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, but I, I but I, th- I think that's absolutely true observation. I'm sure if Brian were here, he would agree. The visual um, cue, actually, I really keyed into with um, Chio, and again, I don't know if it's intentional, but if if it's not, yay! It's fun to 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 make it up for myself, and if it is, then awesome. Um, is with Chio when she's plucking the feathers, the way that she reaches through the the feathers to pull them out for me it was disturbingly similar to what we got in um i want to say season one maybe it was season two with uh abigail's father and the horse or the 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 deer which then becomes the the victim's hair as she is you know and, and then abigail finds the hair inside of the pillow at her house um and remembering back to her hunting trips with her father and she as she pulls her hand through the fur of the deer and then it becomes the the woman's or the victim's hair uh taking some an image that should be so um it sh- it seems like it should be like a nice thing it's like it's running your fingers through hair running your fingers through feathers but is also at the same time violent and is also this you know this lovely image, this lovely feeling, sensation, trans- but is so connected to death. So she's doing this because she's killed this thing, and now she's going to consume it. It t- you know ties in with these themes of, of eating and feeding and 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 all of that, which are so in- inextricably linked to Hannibal. But to take an image that should be satisfying or or pleasing or pleasurably s- sensual or tactile, um, and to give it that disturbing edge, I thought was very effective. Do we see that same disturbing edge in? The scene where Hannibal's running his fingers through Bedelia's hair in the bathtub. Yes, I did. I don't know if you were going for that, Vincenzo. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I think you're right. I mean, I think that it's. I just think it's inherent in the material, and the way Brian writes and the way he conceives of these images, he's constantly finding something that is sensual and beautiful in something that, from another perspective, could be considered quite grotesque, and. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think I think those kinds of motifs just sort of naturally appear. And I, even though they may or may not be intentional, I think they should not, shouldn't be dismissed. I think that's all correct. I like Bedelia's role in this episode. I think of the three, obviously, this is the the cast list that has the most people in it, uh, at least the most prominent characters. And her conversations with Hannibal. Are fascinating. The the one that opens the episode in particular has this exchange where she explains that she thinks that whatever happens, she'll find a way to maneuver out of the trouble of the situation that she's found herself in. And she asks Hannibal about this and if if he thinks that he can do this as well. And the line of dialogue that he says is, "I did," 
past tenses in that he doesn't necessarily believe that he can get out of this anymore. And then this this also brings up the issue of drawing everyone to him. That's that's what Bedelia mentions as well, that his impulsive actions in the episode are really kind of going against the the point of fleeing and being undercover. So um, just thinking about that, uh, what might be his motivations there, Vincenzo? Do you think that this is him just being lonely and needing his friend Will, or is it that he really doesn't think that he can lawfully, well, not lawfully, that he can get this, get away with it, basically. What What's behind his kind of breakdown here? Um, well, I don't think it's a breakdown. Uh, I, I, this is just my interpretation. Um, I, I think that he loves those people and he doesn't want to leave them behind, not just Will, but Jack and Alana. And I think that he, um, it, again, it's part of the epic poem and the poem hasn't come to an end yet. And so even though he's escaped from North America, he has every intention of bringing his friends to see him in Europe. And, uh, so it's, I always thought about, it's been many, many years since I read it, but I always thought about the Herman Hesse novel, Damien, in relation to Hannibal, because it's about this relationship that's a little bit similar between uh, Will and Hannibal, a kind of student and an older brother-type figure with darker sensibilities. And um, and I, I think that's part of the, for me anyway, the real draw to Hannibal is that I'm sure we all have people like him in our lives who are have encountered people like him who are incredibly intelligent, um, you know, in some ways perhaps superior to us, and who have a dark secret kind of knowledge, and um, you know, and 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 invariably those kinds of people draw and need others around them. And I feel like Hannibal is that person. He doesn't operate. Um, in isolation he needs to be a part of a family in a way so um and the people around him need him too they discover as will says that you know he could somehow actually forgive hannibal (laughs) for what he's done and uh and it's it's just it's the, the that perverted kind of relationship that just makes the whole thing so fascinating um because it seems so counterintuitive and yet, I think it's so true to life. Yeah, Will says, I've never known myself as well as I have, uh, or as well as I know myself when I'm with him. That that does bring up the perversion of that. Well, if he's trying, if Hannibal is trying to, to draw the people around him, where, considering that, and considering that he heard Will say that he forgives him, Kate, what do you make of that ending, where he seems to come to the conclusion that the only way to progress is to consume will. Um, I'm not sure yet, other than I don't think it's going to happen because it's the main character and, you know, and uh, I don't, I, I kind of doubt that uh, Will could be convinced to just like, you know, give up an arm the way that um, Hannibal is able to 
work his mojo on um, his previous victims, whether whether it be Abigail or um, Miriam. Uh, and if he could, then he wouldn't be interesting anymore to Hannibal. Um, so it, it feels like a very, first of all, that's, I wrote down in my notes, that's how you end an episode. It's a hell of an end to an episode. Um, but it also, again, it feels to me sort of like this continuation of what I was seeing as a, uh, an immature response. You know, so I, I absolutely believe that Hannibal believes that in that moment. I don't see it coming to fruition, but I do see, um, again, because I know it's a TV show and I know Will Graham's going to be around for a while. Um, but it, it, it does feel like a natural progression for what Hannibal would assume and what he would think this I, I I'm still you know pondering and struggling with some of my thoughts about the the episode but one of the themes that I thought was interesting in this episode and I'm curious for your you know again if, if this how much of this um, is where you were coming from uh, Vincenzo with the episode but we have the, these two incredibly striking um, uses of water in the first two episodes of the season. We have Bedelia sinking into uh, the, the dark, inky Hannibal water of terrible, terribleness, uh, TM. And and then we have Will being just covered in this blood-soaked water in the second episode. And then here, in this episode, we have Will reflected on what looks like blood or bloody water. And then he steps into it. it. The red goes away. It becomes water. And then it disappears. So this notion of him walking on top of or just, you know, dispersing or freeing himself from that red water of the second episode. And then Bedelia, we have her again in that tub sinking down into the water. But now it's white water and it's it's not black. And it's also her... Um, her slipping away from Hannibal as as she does that. And I'm curious, I was interpreting that as sort of these two characters taking forward steps in their relationship with Hannibal, freeing themselves from him somewhat and establishing more autonomy. So this, that I also connected to Hannibal then. Um, he's more grasping for stuff. He's less in control here, which maybe is what he likes as much as he needs control. He likes the challenge of not having it in the same way and having to reassert it. But for me, that sort of felt like an extension of, of that visual motif from earlier in the episode. Like this is him grasping for the next thing to reassert his control over his relationship with Hannibal and sorry, with Will. Um, well, <laughs> I, I think you're just, you know, much more, um, analytical than I am, but I, but I do think, I mean, there's no question there's, there's a, a visual motif with water. And I, I think it's a very elemental thing. And I never, I, I never um, saw it in quite that way, but I, you know, I think that there's actually a Catholic aspect to it. You mm. know, it's um, like holy water and it, it's a cleansing thing. I think that um, in that respect, water plays a role and will play a role you'll see in upcoming episodes. I don't know that it's just that. And I think it has a kind of um, just a, a sensual quality to it that is in keeping with the whole vibe of the show. Um so that's that's a little more where I was with it. Um, plus, it just looks, you know, 
it looks great in slow motion. <laughs> it looks great. Yeah, totally. It looks really pretty. But, but you know, in the first episode, you, of course, Hannibal washes water off of himself and washes blood off of himself in the shower in Bedelia's house after he's stabbed Will. And then he washes the blood off of Bedelia after she's killed her patient. Um, so I think the whole notion of water is, uh, is something that is p- capable of cleansing our souls and our sins, which is a truly Catholic concept. Um, and I just feel like the whole show is dripping in Catholicism and Catholic imagery is, is pretty m- much where I see it coming from. But that, you know, that transition to the puddle, it's from, I, I think that was my idea. I can't even remember. I shouldn't say that that was my idea. I, it, it may have been, it may not have been. Um, but I certainly remember for me, it, it functions more as just the means of getting from place to place in a kind of non-literal way, which is how I feel like the show operates and, and what is really fun about watching it and, and about being involved in the making of it, because you just don't have to clunk your way through it like you would most uh, TV shows. Like you, everything is, is so um, wrapped in a kind of, poetic, um, gauzy <laughs> filter, uh, which is so beautiful. And, and I'm, when I'm directing the show, I'm always, I look, I actually put a lot of emphasis on transitions, uh, in scenes because I think, especially on a TV show where you have this very limited amount of time to actually shoot a scene. Um, if you, if you put a little extra effort into how you get in and out of it, that that's an economical way of 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 making a statement um and uh and so i something like that shot of will walking over the surface watery surface and then that becoming the means for him to arrive in lithuania is um it's partly just i think the vernacular of the show just you know i feel like that's the the way the show um, tells its story, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do it. I actually don't. One of the few things I don't like about the show are the the chirons. I just feel like they're really out of place. I don't think, especially in this season, um, because I just don't think that the show spoon feeds the audience, and it kind of is best when you know, it inspires conversations like this one where we're just trying to figure out what the hell it means. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's fun about it. And, and so, you know, enticing and um, special about it. So, so yeah, sorry, a very long winded answer, but I, I think, I, I think probably what you're saying could be exactly right. But from my perspective, when I was working on the show, I think I, I tried not to assign too much uh, literal meaning to, you know, particular images like the, I'm sure there's a kind of, um, lexicon of symbols in Brian Fuller's mind that I'm not even aware of that I'm just kind of channeling unintentionally through his writing and his direction. But, um, uh, but generally speaking, I'm, yeah, not trying to assign too much specific significance to anything. I mean, every once in a while there's something, uh, but yeah, I, I get, I get worried if I get too little, sometimes I think if I get too overly analytical and literal minded about it, then I, I, sometimes I think I dumb it down 
I, sometimes I think I'm just better operating on an intuitive level. I think my favorite transition in this episode was when we get Hannibal's face and Will's cup of tea. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking Thank of you. more water stuff, yeah. Um, well, let's. I'm like, I'm, it's really interesting hearing this um, because you know we we rarely get the chance to get this perspective, and I wanted to the point specifically to the the therapy sequence between Hannibal and Will, which begins out in the forest, transitions back to Hannibal's office in Baltimore, and is shot in this like through through glass that eventually splinters and breaks. Um, could you talk about the direction of that a little bit? Yeah, well, in the script, that wasn't in the script initially, or wasn't in the script at all. What was in the script was, at a certain point, Hannibal was going to appear as though he were made out of glass. And um, and that was going to be a very expensive special effect. <laughs> and, and then I just had this notion, I actually had a, a, a beveled glass door that I was going to use in the first episode for when Hannibal was in Paris at the part Dr. Fell's party. And I didn't get to use it for various reasons. And then when it came time to shoot that scene in Hannibal's office, I, I think almost on the spot, it was almost an improvised thing. It suddenly occurred to me, I could use that door. And, and then we would, the whole scene would be as if we were sort of, is if it were filtered through, uh, um, you know, the, a stained glass window that Hannibal refers to, and um, and I felt like that. I felt like I didn't want to go right back to the office and and without it being distorted in some way. That you know that would have been kind of prosaic and dull, and um, and so very much. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, I hope I'm remembering this right. I very much on a on a whim. I just had the grip set up this door and we shot the whole scene through it. Uh, and to protect myself, I actually shot it without that because I, it was done so off the cuff. I didn't get a chance to run it past Brian or anybody. Um, Cause it would have, you know, it would have been baked into the image. So I did a clean version, but Brian, I think I presented the, that version that you have in my cut and, and he kept it. So I presume he was happy with it, but, uh, but yes, that's that's the beauty of of the show is that you're permitted to do these sort of radical things. In fact, encouraged to. I mean, Brian would be nothing would horrify him more than if you just handed him like a very conventional shot reverse shot version of that scene. He, he kind of demands he demands that you offer up the poetic version and you offer up the version that is really has plays up the the depth of what's going on in the writing because the writing's always so layered and um and i think he really wants the show to be more he doesn't want it to be a show he wants it to be a movie you know he wants it to be very cinematic and uh and that's that's as a director on the show that's really what you're tasked with is is kind of stepping above and beyond what is expected and um and so that would be a perfect example actually and, uh, uh, and, and then I guess it's also in keeping with this whole idea of Hannibal's mind palace and will trying to, in some way, in his own mind, reconstruct what that mind palace is so that he can find out where Hannibal is because he's hunting him down. 
Um, so it, yeah, it was it was interesting, um, and uh, and the yeah the glass was just so cool. <laughs> I remember when we I didn't yeah I really I have to say like I didn't quite know I've shot through bevel glass before so I had some indication of what it would be like I had some idea but I this particular piece was the way it it broke up the faces into multiple facets and that they would then in the editing you know, I, it suddenly occurred to me, well, what if we, as opposed to cutting between the shots, what if we dissolve between them? So you kind of have, it almost feels like one long shot because as Will is sort of fading out as we go through a piece of glass, Hannibal is fading in. And um, and again, they're kind of being doppled and sort of twinned and tied together, you know, again, sort of getting across this idea that they're, uh, two peas in a pod are, <laughs> you know, um, very, very deeply psychologically uh, connected with each other. Well, it just ties into the episode's theme of reflections. I mean, the visual motifs, not just there, but in the in the tea. And uh, I mean, we see Chio reflected in the, the butcher knife. Um, yes, yeah, sort of a callback to Mizumono and, the, and Kaisuke with the... Um, reflection of Hannibal and Jack and the knives. And it's just, it's a recurring visual motif and it's very effective in that, just in that therapy scene that we're getting the, the use of the, having those prism, that prisming of the, the Hannibal and Will, I mean, we're in Will's mind palace, but he's channeling Hannibal's mind palace and talking about Hannibal's mind palace, but he's talking to himself but how much of him is still him? I mean, like, it just works really well. And it looks super pretty, like you said. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really can't understate the importance of looking super pretty. <laughs> yeah. It, um, and I absolutely agree that it's important if we're going to go back to a place that we've been in in a previous version of this series, because this is very much a new Brian Fuller's Hannibal now in season three, that it has to be distorted in some way. And so that that made perfect sense. And any kind of re-entry of something old and familiar ought to be distorted as well. And I'm going to use that as my careful transition into talking about Jack, because the way that he's brought in, I think, is rather striking, especially the sound design with the percussion that I'm sure Kate is going to talk about uh, a little bit later. But it's it's great just having him here. And it's also rather interesting considering the way that he interacts with Ronaldo Pazzi because understandably he is very shaken up. And I'm wondering, Kate, if you could talk a little bit about how Jack seems a bit different in this episode. Well, first, uh, I got to take this opportunity to say thank you, Vincenzo, for giving him like the badass hero entrance. Because I was just like, I was like, oh, I know that hat. Oh, yeah. Jack's coming. It was delightful. And I also enjoyed this is, again, I don't I don't know how much of this is it's pretty and how much of this is intentional thematic connections. But we get in episode one of the season, Abel Gideon rolling from out of focus into focus in his second, the start of his second scene. We get in the previous episode, Will stepping from out of focus into focus to say, I forgive you. And then here, when Jack is introduced, he starts out out of focus and then walks into focus as well. And so just to get that, that, that 
arrival point. We've been wanting him to show up. We've been missing him. We've been hoping he's okay and assuming he probably is because of, you know, released images and, you know, Lawrence Fishburne and everything. But um, it was it was a very satisfying first moment. So thank you for that. Well, um, you know, it's funny when we shot it, I think that was Lawrence's first day back. Mm-hmm. So it had, even on the set, you know, it had a similar kind of feeling like, oh, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, maybe that somehow seeped into the actual footage. But yeah, he seems, um, I, I really appreciate him as an, and, and Patsy as a, as two sides of a, of a coin, maybe. And after the events of Mizumono, I, I like that he's just basically like, you know, Patsy is talking to him about, you know, trying to catch a monstro. And he's basically like, guys, NMP, not my problem. I, I, I'm off the clock right now. And I've learned that lesson from last season. So I'm just, I'm just here for Will to stop him from doing anything too crazy. Um, that's, that feels like a very distinct difference for me from Jack. I mean, it feels in character, but it feels in character as informed by the events of last season. And um, so that was fun. And then because there are really those same traits in Potsy as, as in Jack, like that dogged um, investigator, you know, the determination of that, the the certainty that we get from Potsy feels very much like the, um, you know, the, the terrier kind of ass or bulldog aspect of, of Jack from earlier on. Um, but yeah, I, you know, his ability to just distance and step back and say, Hey, I'm not here for Hannibal. I can let that go. This is not my jurisdiction. Um, that was an interesting and, uh, for, you know, someone who doesn't want him to get stabbed in the throat again, I was kind of all for it. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he also, as he's talking with Potsy about Hannibal, has that now inherent understanding of the kind of person that Hannibal is. So he's able to to talk from a place of authority in the same way that we get Will talking not just about Hannibal but of other serial killers that he's able to to go into the minds of. And so it's it it's a more veteran Jack Crawford's, and I get the sense that it's a much sadder one as well. This is eight months later. Are we assuming that Bell is dead at this point? Don't say it. Go back? <laughs> don't say it. It was my first thought when he's lighting the candle. I was like, oh, please don't let him be lighting a candle for Bella because, again, we love Gina Torres. I want to see her again, even if it maybe makes sense that she's died off screen. <laughs> I'm assuming that, you know, we'll, we'll get a flashback of that just to do her character justice, but yeah, there's got to be so much going on now. Um, but the eight-month eight difference certainly has its advantages in terms of emotionally detaching from it so that he no longer feels like the the former head of the FBI wanting to catch this guy um, that he's there to, to get his friend which I think is important so it, his reintroduction to this is is wonderful I think as we we stated um, uh, another thematic thing I wanted to talk about because we do have this chance to talk about Hannibal and I think it just invokes so many different kinds of conversation. The The line that Hannibal says to Bedelia when she asks about what happened to him back at home in Lithuania when he was younger, and he says, nothing happened to me, I happened. That there wasn't a thing that uh, exerted an influence on him, but that it was more just like a natural occurrence. Um, if we can kind of just speculate about that and... 
uh, Vincenzo, do you think that some somebody or something like Hannibal could really develop independently like that, or is he just uh, downplaying some of the effects that things like the death of his sister have had on him? Uh, I think if you ask Matt, he would 100% say that Hannibal just is, and there was no event in his life that made him what he is. Um, I think that's very much, that's like really profoundly a part of his interpretation of the character and the way he plays the character. So there was discussion about that um, because, uh, and I, I agreed with Matt, he didn't want it to be like there was a simple explanation for why Hannibal exists in this world. And, you know, and psychologically, there would be a simple explanation like, oh, my sister was killed and eaten and therefore I'm going to become a cannibal. I think he resisted that idea. Not to say that Hannibal wouldn't, hasn't been influenced by the events in his own life, but, but they are not the reason for uh, who he is and why he does what he does. Uh, so that's, that's how we played it. That was a very clear, conscious choice. It's something that I agree with as well, especially because it it's the more artistic uh, option of the two, that he just happens rather than things happening that create him. Um, it's also much more horrifying that that something like that is naturally occurring, that he and, or somebody like him could just exist, I think. Yeah, I mean, and probably truer to life. You know, I you hear about serial killers who have perfectly wonderful upbringings <laughs> uh, and not always sometimes they have horrible but upbringings but I think uh, and it invariably comes down to that nature nurture argument um, but I there's definitely a tendency in Hollywood to or there had been maybe this is changing now but there had been a tendency that everything had to be psychologically explainable and that you know, there was always a reason for why the bad guy was the way he was and a story behind why the, he was the way he was. And that feels a little bit naive. Um, just not sure that things work like that. And then, frankly, just less interesting because at the end of the day, I'm sure Hannibal will always be an enigma. Um, he will be unknowable. And in his, in the in our inability to fully comprehend him, he remains a truly terrifying figure. I think that's, I had that, you know, in some of my own things when I made my first film, Cube, um, which is a story about a group of people trapped in a, a giant cube maze. Uh, and there, there was a lot of pressure in the course of making that film for there to be an explanation as to why the cube exists and who built it and so on. And, and I always resisted that because I just felt no matter what the explanation could be, it would never be that interesting. Like it would always somehow diminish, diminish it. And, and it's the fact that you don't know that there are just some things in life that you can never fully come to grips with. Um, like life itself, it's just, <laughs> it's just so far beyond, you know, we're just not, as human beings, we just don't have the big picture and we never will. And it's just that fundamental uh, dilemma of how we come to grips with that. That's really powerful and frightening. And I think Hannibal 
as a character falls into that category of the, the just the the uncanny and the unexplainable. And it's re- it's really important, you know, for for who he is for him to remain that way. He, I think, yeah, as a character, in many ways, is very inexplicable, and and yet some of his actions can certainly be informed by um, things in his past, and I'm hoping that we're going to get more a little bit about that in this season with regards to his sister, because um, Bedelia says something in this episode about as he's having dinner uh, with some of his colleagues, that he's made this recipe that was originally... Um, for his sister, and Bedelia kind of smirkingly says that he's probably perfected this over the years, obviously referring to the different times that he's probably tried it out with some of his victims, but this idea of wanting to get that recipe right, um, Kate, even if Hannibal is inexplicable, do you think that some of the actions and decisions that he's made have been motivated by this past and wanting to, to do justice to her memory? Well, I think he certainly would. I think as viewers, that's a very comfortable thing to think about and have that having that through line. Certainly, like Vincenzo, like you had said, if we can understand where the monster comes from, then we can uh, see its limits and we can predict it in some ex- to some extent. So that makes it much more um, much an easier thing to process, an easier thing to to get a grips on, just psychologically and mentally, um, and that diminishes its scope and its power. Um, with something like Hannibal, what this really, because I, you know, I really feel like I, I agree with him when he says he happened, he wasn't created, um, and and I, I, you know, I sort of think of what would his life and his childhood have been if he's still him. And this horrible instigating incident hadn't occurred. So what would he have ended up warping Misha into, his beloved sister? He didn't have the opportunity to turn her into a Miriam or an Abigail or a Bedelia so shaped and controlled by him. He didn't have that opportunity. And so she can remain this this separate, um, fully autonomous you know, very significant figure in his life because he never had the opportunity to impress his will upon her. But if we're to believe that he was not formed by this incident, he didn't just change him into something new, but that was already lurking there very much in his identity. Um, I think it's just, it's a convenient thing for him to, to, to tie his sorrows to and his lack of understanding and his loneliness to, Oh, it's because I lost my sister and I miss my sister as opposed to, I just, there is no reason. There isn't an explanation. Like, if my sister was only here, I wouldn't be so lonely, but that's something that was taken from me. Let's make sure that prisoner sits in a cell only listening to water for the rest of his life or until Chio kills him. Um, so I think it's a convenient story for him to tell himself when he decides he wants to, when he wants to be the um, the tragic hero of his own story, as opposed to the larger-than-life force that he also at times likes to think of himself as yeah yeah and certainly Hannibal um if like you had said if Misha had been fine then this thing that Hannibal was was allowed to exist without that as something to lay his sorrows on again the reality of that I think is pretty terrifying um but Chenzo while we still have you I was wondering if maybe there are some other things uh any kind of like 
favorite scenes or enjoyable experiences that you wanted to talk about that you had while working with the crew this year? Uh, <laughs> I always have a hard time answering those questions because it's, <laughs> it's so packed, you know, like you get into these situations and it's uh, a little bit like being in combat. It's just, I'm still suffering the after effects, I think. But um, uh, what, what did Brian Fuller do to you? <laughs> <laughs> what didn't he do? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny Hannibal, as you may have heard, is a very tough show um, because for a variety of reasons, uh, and I could spend an hour describing it to you, but I think fundamentally what it comes down to is Brian has this, I mean, he's, I, I don't know. I, I have tremendous, tremendous admiration for his writing um, and, and, and Steve's writing as well, Steve Lightfoot's. I, but I just think the, you know, when you get one of those scripts, like it's something really special and uh, it's not product. It's not what a lot of TV is. It's, it's you know, I think it's without overstating I really feel like it's a work of art that's going to last a long time and I think Brian knows that too <laughs> and so he expects nothing less than perfection and he doesn't care how you get it he doesn't care if it took 15 minutes to do it or if it took five days that's completely immaterial he's completely result oriented um, which is a is fantastic and but it it's hard on the crew because uh, and the cast, because um, we have finite resources and time, and uh, and pe so people work like, and plus everyone loves the show, you know. So everyone works like hell to to make this sort of impossible thing happen. And uh, so yeah, you don't leave Hannibal without a you know a few scars, <laughs> but then you're really you're really proud of them at the end. And uh, uh, so, so to kind of very indirectly answer your question, I mean, I, I love, love, love working with the cast. They're just uniformly brilliant and wonderful people. Like they're just really great to work with and they are just so talented. And every day I'd have to pinch myself, you know, because I'm going to work with Mads Mikkelsen or Hugh or, Lawrence or any one of them and uh uh and they and they they are what makes the whole thing possible because they're just so professional and good and then the and the crew is is equally excellent so it's a very i think like as always with these things what gets you through it what makes it great are the people you work with um and uh but yeah but I'm always bad with giving specifics because I kind of forget them or blot them out. <laughs> Uh, but I, what I also say for me, just personally this year, was very exciting was to come in at the beginning and therefore in some small way, you know, um, help develop the look and the feel of the season. Whereas the previous season, I was very much stepping into something that was, you know, a train that was already in motion. And um, but this time I really got in at the ground floor when we were planning the first three and, you know, was able to just be more a part of the, the designing of, of the show. And, um, which was really great. And, uh, but that's it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, I just have the, my work 
aside completely, um, I just have the highest regard for the show itself. I really think it's it's just so bold and daring and in and cinematic in a way that a lot of movies aren't these days. And um, and that's so I just feel like insanely lucky to in any small way be a part of that. If uh, Fuller's very results oriented and. I think he should be very pleased with how Hannibal has gone thus far. He's certainly chosen his directors very carefully, and I think it speaks volumes that uh, that you've helmed these first three episodes, and it absolutely makes sense because the, 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 your vision in particular, based on your work as a director, I think fits this series so perfectly. And uh, I, I know we'd at first just like to thank you for <laughs> giving us these first three, and we look forward to, to number six as well because they've been fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you, guys. No, it's such a pleasure talking with you. You're your analysis is deeper than my own. <laughs> it's really great to hear what you have to say. All right. Um, we're going to say goodbye to Vincenzo now, but listeners, stick around, and Kate and I will be uh, right back to wrap up the discussion of this episode. All right, and we are back. And we'll move right along to uh, the recurring segments for this podcast, of course, and begin with Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring and the soundtrack in Secondo? Well, there are three classical pieces that are featured um, prominently in this episode, and the first is Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 2 in B-flat major, Opus 19. That's the second movement, the Adagio, and that's uh, when they're having dinner with Soliato. And um, I, for the soundtrack choices this week, they don't feel as... Um, um, particular and um, specific as some of the other ones have been like the raindrop prelude um, for Bedelia getting ready for her bath in the premiere or, um, or the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. Um, they're mostly just really pretty and uh, seem like they fit the scenes well. So um, for this one, the only note I have aside from the fact that it's interesting that um, it, cause so one of the things that um, that Brian Reitzel has talked about with his scoring for the season is wanting it to feel very Italian and the other music that we've gotten, the other classical music that we've gotten has been more, um, you know, more dreamlike, like the, again, the, the Foray or the, um, the Ravel or the WC, um, as opposed to getting, no, it wasn't the Foray and the WC, I should say. Um, but in the first party scene we had in the premiere, when we meet Dimond, that was Beethoven, and then it's Beethoven again here in Soliato's Dinner. Also, this is the first piano concerto that Beethoven wrote, so um, we get Hannibal's that may have been impulsive <laughs> and other less than, you know, again, for me, this theme of instinct and maybe less maturity from Hannibal in this episode. So having it be early Beethoven as opposed to late Beethoven, you know, maybe there, there's some significance there, but otherwise I think it's just a pretty piece. Next up is the Tonami Adir Kimami. I don't speak Italian, but something like that uh, from Don Pasquale, which is of course by Donizetti. And that's the, that's the opera that we had an aria or an excerpt from in, again, in the premiere in Antipasto. Um, this is in the scene when they're eating Soliato. Uh, so the dinner of Soliato rather than the dinner with Soliato. And um, this is from the end, towards the end of the opera, when the young lovers, um, uh, Ernesto and and Norina, are, are reunited briefly before they finally work everything out at the very end. Um, and it's it's a love song. And it translates, the title translates as uh, Say Again That You Love Me. So having that be used here, it's a nice bookend or or complement maybe to the first aria that we get from this opera, 
um, and in the premiere when Hannibal's cooking up Dr. Fell, um, and here he's, you know, he's cooked up, um, Soliato. So there's a through line there. Um, and again, it's, it's so very Italian when the, the sound of it, the picking Donizetti as opposed to, you know, maybe a, a Mozart opera that's in Italian. He picks an Italian, you know, an Italian opera written, you know, it's very Italian sounding, um, and and this is also when they're discussing the traditions of you know the the fourth the fifth quarter and everything with the meal. So I, th- I thought that that paired very well. It's very lush sounding. It's this love song. So to have that complimenting the um, oh it's so the meat is so delicious. I mean it's really disturbing and gross in a very effective way. So there's that one. And the the, the final classical selection is the Fantasy Vals by Eric Satie. Um, uh, and that is, again, one of Satie's very first compositions for the piano. So that that's what the piece that Hannibal's playing at the end when he decides he needs to uh, eat Will to forgive him. And um, uh, and so that will, um, again, tie back for me to this theme of immaturity from from Hannibal or looking for a simple solution. It's it's a lovely piece, but again, not the most complex, not uh, anywhere near the, the the heights of complexity and nuance that Satie would get at various points in his compositional and performing career. But um, that, you know, so that, that that's, again, I think it's just a piece that makes sense for Hannibal to be playing and sounds pretty. And I mean, if you want to say fantasy waltz tying into the theme of fairy tale for this episode, as well as the, the once upon a time and fantasy element of his times, his time throughout Europe, um, through, through these first three episodes, you know, that maybe there's a tie to the title there, but on the whole, again, I just think it's a pretty piece for them to use. Um, as for the scoring, I really noticed in this episode, a very distinct contrast between the scoring for Hannibal and the scoring for Will. And so Will has this, and I talked about this last week a little bit, but Will's got this very densely layered, thick scoring, whereas Hannibal, I mean, that opening conversation scene with Hannibal and Bedelia is, there's almost, there, it, it, there's plenty of scoring, but it's very subtle and very, um, it's nowhere near as thick or as dense as the scoring, the sound of, kind of sound wall scoring we get for Will later. Um, so, so I thought that was an interesting contrast where, where they are at their two different head spaces. I, there was a, what felt almost like a, like a, a laughing or a mocking kind of sound when we see Misha's headstone, which doesn't make sense for me as something. So, so I'm wondering if other listeners have, um, have other interpretations of it, or if they see it in a different way, they don't hear it as being, as being mocking or more as like just an ominous or a, Oh, here's this tie to the past kind of thing. But, um, yeah, that's the association I have with that with that type of sound. So I don't know that that's what they're going for because it doesn't make sense for me. But I thought that was interesting, and I look forward to hearing from listeners um, about what they thought of that that little bit of scoring. The there there's this like consistent thread throughout the episode of glass and of reflection and of um, this sort of like tinkling kind of sound, the broken glass. Um, that we get in that therapy session is, is, is mirrored in the scoring there. Um, there's sort of a, um, there's some like toy piano or kind of keyboardy percussiony kind of sound with Chio when, when she's introduced uh, or when, when Will's hiding from her that I thought was interesting. Um, also we get more organ tying into the theme of Italy and, and uh, Reitzel's use of organ to connect to that. We have the heartbeat motive that you previously mentioned, Sean, um, which ties to the heart stag as well as um, when Jack shows up and, and it's just this very powerful, it's full of this full of life, this 
throb of um, from the drums, um, which I thought, again, energy, vitality, life for Jack, which we're very happy about. But also he's at the crime scene. This is the, you know, what drew him there was uh, dimmed and the, the heart stag. So um, or the heart, I should say. Um, so that makes sense for that theme to come back or that motif to come back the 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 scoring for the lightning bug scene was just gorgeous very evocative um i just wanted to mention it was pretty and then um the last a couple ones i have here uh when chio is manipulated into killing her prisoner we get this uh we get electric guitar we get distortion it really contrasts her killing with the other kills we've seen in the show when will uh kills and or is you know manipulated into killing randall tear um or, or the other people he's killed on the show it's not that kind of it feel has felt different the scoring has felt different so she's very horrified by having to kill so this is not bedelia the little glimpse we saw of bedelia this is not the glimpses we've seen of will this is certainly not hannibal so it's a new kind of sound for that that i thought made sense um and uh the 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 vibes we get sort of uh, as Will is talking to Chio after this, um, uh, and he's saying he's kind of like blaming the victim for it. Um, that kind of connected to me with the the tinkling glass sound we get with the butterfly when it raises up, as well as earlier in the episode. And it also highlights the, this fairy tale feel, this otherworldness, like this distance. The vibes do that. And then the last thing I have is those are the most ominous woodblocks that have ever been ominous over the closing credits um that that blood dripping or water dripping um sound that that Reitzel goes back to so frequently having that be the, the 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 credits music after i have to eat him um is effective those are those are my my notes on the music and for more go over to sound on site and read up my post and you can read my post on the uh the, the scoring but that's what i thought i'd mention here uh what, what came to mind for you sean what stood out to you besides obviously you already mentioned the heartbeat yeah and, and just to refer back to that when you were talking about his entrance like as a, a hero of sorts that that makes it even better that that was the most prominent thing where it was like oh shit here he is <laughs> um the all of the italian uh soundtrack choices have been gorgeous i think and it, it's kind of amazing that fuller was able to hold off the italian theme for the third season because it seems like this is what hannibal the show wants to be often so um that's working especially well for me this season I don't know if you you caught this, but you said that the motif of reflect of yeah of the glass or whatever mm-hmm. was uh, reflected in the scoring. So that was a ah. unintentional pun. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to uh, the devil in the details. We talk about the smaller uh, details in the episode, be they visual or otherwise. I think I just have it's like five small ones, um, but yeah, we'll go back and forth and I just wanted to start with does does Hannibal does both Hannibal do both Hannibal and Jack break the third wall in this episode they might that sounds right but I didn't take note of it Hannibal maybe Jack less so because I think that he's supposed to be looking through the camera at Potsy maybe but it seems Mm -hmm. like and I wish I had written down exactly where it happened that Hannibal looked early on in the episode looked directly at the camera which is so unusual but yeah, yeah that was my first detail 
That's interesting. Uh, if I rewatch, I'll have to I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Um, the first one I have here is after the light the lighter suits that we've gotten for Hannibal in the first two episodes, or his leather jacket um, leather jacket um, on the train, but with again some lighter colors. He's wearing like a butt a black button down. It's like the most angsty opening outfit ever as he sits moodily in his chair. He's like, oh, feels, man, feels. Um, and even Bedelia's in black in that, you know, just, again, a very somber outfit in that first scene. It just feels like such a stark contrast to what we even just get later in the episode with his ridiculous over-the-top brown striped suit, brown and white striped suit. But, um, but yeah, that af- coming from Hannibal, I forgive you, and Hannibal, like, kind of runs out of there because all the feels to, to this, him sitting in a chair staring into the distance and he's his hair is slicked over to the side and he's got all black on. I just felt very... Um, it, was, it was fun for me. Of course, Hannibal knows the cocktail that was served to the first-class passengers on the Titanic in their last meal. Mm-hmm. Punch Romaine. Yep. <laughs> totally. Um, let me see. I have... Oh, we already talked about that. Most of these that I have, we've already kind of talked about. Um, so I will mention, was that a bird of paradise flower on, on Misha's grave? I, like, that triggered something in my memory from earlier in the show, but I'm not 100%. Did that trigger anything for you, Sean? Uh, bird of paradise. Um, no, but I'm only up to rewatching. I think I'm on episode five of season two. So if it happens after that, I'll let you know. Okay. And again, our best resource, the listeners, the fanables, let me know if I'm just like remembering something that didn't happen or if there, there is a, that was a specific shout out. You're uh, constructing new memories like Will was last season. I would not put it past myself. What else do you have, Sean? The both the stag and the Wendigo make an appearance at that campfire, which is great because I like the presence of both of them, even if Wendigo is very creepy. Super creepy. Um, uh, when when uh, when Will is putting up his you know his design, my note here is um, not cool, Fuller. <laughs> um, are super dark, super dark, not cool. And Will's, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want this. It's like, I, I think there are about eight U's in my shore. So uh, that, it was disturbing, but um, but also uh, very effective. Um, yeah. I, I, I We didn't really get a chance to talk about that and what you think of that, but that was a tricky part of the episode for me. Technically, you killed him. <laughs> observation versus participation man that was my other detail um yeah it was just that and then the the firefly sequence is a lot of really beautiful and like Vincenzo said um fairy tale driven imagery that worked really well in this episode the there was the last thing i guess i'll, I'll have um is just that because i already talked about the white soapy water for bedelia so um the last thing i'll, I'll just have is um there was some pretty funny dialogue and and his that that may have been impulsive. I, I like that they still find space for comedy in in especially by the end of the episode is pretty dark. So I like that there's still some space for comedy this week. Yes. So yeah, the 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 dragonfly tableau. Um, did you want to talk about that, or is there any, anything else that you wanted to talk about? Well, so theoretically, 
Hannibal's not going to be coming back because he can't come right, home. Which would mean that. So that's not for Hannibal. That's for Will. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. I guess it's his way of exerting his control now that Hannibal is on the defensive. I don't know, but Will, like, he practically, like, saunters, like, sachets away um, as as he's passing Chio once he's raised up that dragonfly. Um, and so, yeah, this, and it's obviously, I think it's also imagery connecting, you know, Will's transformation into this new version of himself and, and all of that. But the first, his first design, his first tableau was Randall. And that was very much designed for a purpose. That was something that was difficult for him to stomach, but he did it because he needed to for uh, to, to help try to catch Hannibal. This is something completely new, entirely different, and very disturbing. The fact that he's doing that when he has he shouldn't think that that Hannibal will ever see it, um, or that anyone will ever see it, is uh, very upsetting. But not out of character, I mean, maybe. And maybe I don't like that it's not out of character. I hadn't even thought about that as well. I just figured, oh, yeah, this is a way of, like, leaving a mark in, like, Hannibal's home. But you're right, there's there's no way Hannibal's going back there. So what the hell, Will? WTF. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I think that was it for most of my topics. Uh, anything else that you wanted to touch on? No, I think that's I think that's plenty. We've gone super long once again, <laughs> but it, you know it's gonna be you know. a season of that. I think. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We're we're at the end of our screeners, so we'll see whether they give us more or uh, if this is the last week that we're able to have the podcast out right when the episode ends. Right. Yeah. So that's something to to warn listeners about. That uh, yeah, Hannibal episodes air Thursday night, so I guess expect future episodes if we don't get screeners to go up probably Sunday night at the latest, but hopefully earlier than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it uh, for this week. Anything else that you wanted to plug? Any goings on on the internet? Well, by the time people are hearing this, um, Game of Thrones has wrapped up, so no more Game of Thrones podcast, which is good a good thing for my sanity, and uh, e- even if it is a bad thing for Game of Thrones fans. Um, and Orphan Black will be finishing up soon. Veep will have finished up. So it's basically, for me, it's just like the Hannibal show right now, as well as all the other TV that we cover over at the Televerse, the weekly TV podcast for Sound On Sight. So you guys, if you want to talk Hannibal or any other TV, you can hit me up on Twitter at the Televerse. I love talking with you guys. I love hearing from um, from other Fanables uh, what they think of the show and what they're, they're getting out of it. Um, so please reach out. We love when you guys, as long as it's not reaching out like the creepy heart stag, then we're good. <laughs> That's not the good kind of reaching out. No, no. <laughs> you can also find uh, me on Twitter at Sean Clady. And yeah, if listeners are, if you're familiar at all with um, the body of work that Vincenzo Natale has done, he's been posting a lot of like conceptual art and stuff like that for some of the past projects and Hannibal stuff as well, of course. Um, so you could do that. You could also contact us at thisisourdesign666 at gmail.com or hit us up over at soundonsite.org when the post for this podcast goes up. But that's it for this week. Okay, and I will be back next week to talk about Season 3, Episode 4, Aperitivo. Uh, Until then, though, this has been This Is Our Design.